The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Gentlemen, you're very welcome to this uh, research seminar on contemporary Irish history. Uh, our speaker today is my my colleague, sorry, my former colleague um, since I've retired, uh, Professor Eve Patton of the School of English in in, in Trinity. Uh, she's the author, most recently, our editor uh, of, and contributor to uh, Volume Six of the of the Cambridge series in in, in Irish literature. Her, her volume being Irish literature in, trans, in transition, nineteen forty to nineteen eighty. She's going to just talk to us today about another dimension of her research. So over to Eve. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Eunan, and thank you to you and to Anne for uh, inviting me to speak to uh, to the the seminar series. Uh, I have a, a rather unwieldy title. Um, I realise, which I, I never clarified with you, but. Uh, what I'll be talking from over the next 40 minutes or so is um, a book that I'm currently finishing, uh, which is about how Ireland's revolutionary decade from the third Home Rule Bill through to uh, the, the Civil War in the early 1920s, how this era is used in English writing, English imaginative writing of the interwar decades. And particularly, I'm looking at modernist fiction uh, but I'm also looking a little bit at the popular novel and other genres. Um, I suppose, uh, as you were mostly uh, listening as historians, you'll be asking, well, why bother looking to writers who make things up uh, as opposed to historians who love facts? Um, but of course, what I'm looking for in these texts are the perceptions and the imaginings um, of Ireland and anxieties or enthusiasms that come through in English writing about the prospect, first of all, of an English revolution and what an English revolution might look like, uh, and also of English nationalism in the interwar period and how this might, uh, I suppose, be inspired by an Irish model. I'm not, not gonna be talking about that uh, today, but it's also uh, something I'm interested in. What I'm gonna talk about today is from a chapter I wrote uh, for the book, which is on the English left, the literary left of the 1930s and 40s. Um, and the English literary left really spans, obviously, everyone from active communists right through to uh, those many armchair revolutionaries uh, of the London salons who emerge in this era. But I want, what I want to ask about is how they use uh, the Irish revolutionary era as allusions or as references in the context of thinking about Britain's revolutionary socialist movement, and also, of course, in the 1930s in relation to the Spanish Civil War. Um, this isn't really any kind of new argument. I have no great thesis here, and uh, um, you'll all be familiar, I think, with the, the very good work that's already been done uh, on these connections. But what I want to ask about is uh, uh, how much we see the Irish revolutionary era uh, being used in a kind of double function in this period. Uh, on one hand, it's a model, it's inspirational. Uh, on the other hand, of course, it's very much used as a warning. It's admonitory. Um, and I, I want to look at a few of the texts I'm writing about with you just to see how this operates. 
Um, so the first slide, which you'll see on the screen, uh, is a figure who may be familiar to some of you from this period. Uh, this is uh, Montague Slater on the left. Uh, and Slater was the author in 1935 of a play called Easter 1916. You'll see it on the information sheet that was produced about the Left Theatre Company in London, about uh, the fifth item down there. Uh, and the play was performed in London by members of the left-wing Rebel Players uh, Theatre Company. Uh, it's a kind of multi-episodic, there are 19 episodes. It's a rendering of the story of the GPO in 1916. Um, and one of the interesting ways to look at it is uh, how it was treated, how the play was treated by the British Censorship Office, uh, which amazingly let it more or less intact go through, apart from one scene, which was the closing scene of Connolly uh, lying dead on a stretcher. He'd been shot in cold blood by an English soldier, and the censor said that this scene was unnecessary and had only been dragged in to sow hatred of the upper classes. But beyond that edit, the play went ahead uh, and uh, Montague was quite cavalier with uh, historical details. Uh, in fact, towards the end of the production, the, the, uh, the tableaus of the post office drama are merged with a performance of the pantomime Cinderella and the audience for Cinderella is somehow caught up in the post office drama. So it's quite experimental as well. And, and very obviously using a kind of English historical pageant format or shape for uh, the story of the Irish drama. Uh, but one thing that Montague Slater was very clear about, and this will be a pattern in most of the texts I'm talking about, uh, is the editing of the events of 1916 that mean Connolly and Connolly's role is promoted and heightened and, and Pierce is kept well in the background. And this is very much in line with keeping a reading of 1916 and the rebellion in a political lineage that, that locks it into the, the strike, the, the lockout of 1913, and keeps it in line uh, in propaganda terms with the, um, the narratives of a, a British revolutionary socialist movement. The play script was uh, then later published by the socialist publishing house, Lawrence and Wishart, and uh, Montague Slater himself went on to more elaborate propaganda ventures and collaborations with uh, many writers, including Benjamin Britten, uh, the uh, composer, and Britten, in fact, had written some of the music that was used in Easter 1916. He did a, the score for a, a performance of The Wearing of the Green. So Slater belonged to um, a cohort of uh, left-leaning writers of the interwar decades who were keen to rekindle uh, English fires of revolution from what they saw as the embers of a very malleable Irish history. And in the long wake of, of 1916, of course, many English authors would look to Ireland for a blueprint of a popular rebellion and a workers' revolution uh, in England. Uh, and this was seen very much as a way of purging uh, an English uh, society and a working class in particular from the stain of the Great War, that apocalyptic experience that was so traumatic and damaging. Um, some writers obviously were very quick off the mark. They traveled to Dublin uh, as soon as uh, the 1916 rebellion uh, had uh, made the news, including, for example, um, the English conscientious objector Douglas Goldring, who became involved in theater movements in Dublin 
immediately after the rising. And, uh, uh, and the, the uh, contemporary of Golding, uh, R.M. Fox, Richard Michael Fox. Quiver, if you'd put up the, the next slide, please. Um, you'll see um, Fox's work. Fox was a, an English anti-imperialist uh, whose political tracts, many of his works were published by the Hogarth Press. And you'll see there the, uh, the, uh, the front page of his autobiography from 1937. This is the 1938 printing by the Hogarth Press. And the Hogarth Press, of course, was run by Leonard and Virginia Woolf. Um, and Fox was a very important point of connection or root of connection between uh, Irish revolutionary, revolutionary sympathizers and uh, a British liberal uh, and labor-leaning uh, intelligentsia in England. Uh, Fox had um, become interested in Irish events, partly because he had read uh, the report scenes from the rebellion that was published very shortly after 1916 um, by Sylvia Pankhurst. And it was written by a very young Patricia Lynch, who later became a, the Irish children's writer. And Fox would go on to, to marry Patricia Lynch. Um, but having read this report and then having gone to Dublin in the early 1920s to follow up on the aftermath of the rising, uh, Fox was very sure that the, the uh, the, the, the foundations were laid in Dublin for what could happen, not only in England, um, but in terms of an international revolution. We in North London, he wrote, hailed the Irish rising as the first crack in the as yet undisputed rule of the imperialists. So the Irish rising was the first crack in the international movement. Um, and uh, Fox would go on to write a number of histories, many of you will know, um, on the Irish independence struggle um, he wrote one of the first biographies of Connolly in 1946. And he also published um, the, the other book, which I put up here just because I love uh, the cover design, uh, his history of the Irish citizen army. And that was published in 1943. Um, Quiver, if you could just go on to the next slide, I'm gonna pass over this next slide quite quickly. Um, but I just wanted to note that of course, it's not only left-wing authors who are interested in using Irish references in their plots, in their narratives. Um, in the book that I'm finishing, I also look quite extensively at how right-wing authors were using revolutionary remnants or leftovers, if you like, um, to create panic, to create awareness of the dangerous prospects for revolution in England. And frequently in these novels, you have a kind of Irish revenant figure, a leftover post-revolutionary who comes to disturb uh, the English landscape and, and ferment trouble. Um, in D.H. Lawrence's Aaron's Rod from 1922, uh, for example, um, I can't resist telling the story, so I will. Uh, Lawrence uh, was stalked, I suppose is the only appropriate word for it, uh, by Jack White. And White had been one of the founders of the Irish Citizen Army and of course uh, had been very closely involved in his own maverick way with the progress of um, the rebellion and uh, events in Ireland. Um, but he uh, got involved with Lawrence in London and pursued him to Cornwall and turned up at Lawrence's house and obviously drink was taken and White assaulted Lawrence physically. Um, the, 
the, the, the, he kicked him and the question of where he aimed the kick is much, was much disputed by Lawrence's contemporary writers at the time. But uh, when Lawrence fictionalizes this episode in Aaron's Rod, it's described as two blows low down in the stomach. Um, so you can read into that what you will. Um, but anyway, this, this assault on Lawrence makes its way into Aaron's Rod in a scene which is very much about channeling this pent up leftover dangerous Irish energy um, that now has surfaced in England. Uh, and this, this, this revenant figure of the Irish post-revolutionary is, is very frequent, as I think Yunan and others who uh, have looked at novels of this period will know. Um, a similar figure turns up in Wyndham Lewis's Revenge for Love in 1937, um, a very sinister uh, post-revolutionary um, uh, Gothic figure called uh, Sean O'Hara, who um, is uh, a former IRA commander turned black shirt, turned bootlegger who gets involved with um, gun running in Spain. And uh, um, it's a very, very interesting study, again, of this sense of the leftover energy of an Irish revolution, um, upsetting and disturbing English landscapes that are, of course, are, are very tense throughout the 1920s and 30s. So there's a very strong right wing take up as well of Irish references. Um, but uh, I'll go back to to um, to the left wing story because I think that much like Lawrence and Lewis, uh, many left wing writers were also very apprehensive about the Irish template. Montague Slater's model that seemed to suggest it was a very appropriate blueprint was queried by several on the left who. Um, I, I think thought that the, the supposedly pure motivations that had driven 1916 had been tainted by the spoilers of what had happened uh, after the rebellion, the self-interest, the divisiveness, and of course the barbarism that they identified with the independence campaign. Uh, and then that litany of civil war atrocities and rep reprisals that caused so much shock uh, when they were reported in uh, England. Um, and this distaste was intensified by those intermittent Irish Republican uh, campaigns that ran in England during the post-treaty decades, specifically in the very early 1920s and again in 1939. Um, and these would, would really exacerbate the, the kind of gangsterish associations of Irishness and trouble English invocations of Irish socialism. Um, if you look at the next slide, uh, this is now, this is where um, Trinity Library's uh, evil practice of, of not preserving dust jackets, of course, will annoy everybody again. Uh, I don't have, and I would love to have the, the original dust jacket for this novel. This is 1933, uh, a novel called Revolt. Uh, it's by A.P. Rowley. That's the pen name of a socialist journalist called George Chandler. Um, and uh, Trinity does have a copy of this, uh, and you can also access a photocopy in Queen's Library, but it's, I haven't been able to get hold of the original novel myself. It's the story of a young Liverpudlian communist called Judd Bacon, who gets involved with a cell of Irish Republican racketeers in England, and this cell is led by a, an agent provocateur called Mick Donovan, 
who uh, is a former member or former IRA uh, leader, but he's also, we learn, a castle informer. So he's being chased by his own side. Um, and this cell is active in the north of England. They take advantage of the young communists revolutionary fervor and they get him involved in a gun running operation which with great irony uh, necessitates a raid on a post office in England. Uh, it's very much a kind of formulaic um, noirish melodrama that's set very specifically in 1920 to 21 um, and it's a, a heavily warning to English socialists about the claims of an Irish contingent to any kind of revolutionary virtue or authority. And I think what Rowley wanted to do was to address the skeptical element of English, England's left-wing literati uh, and indeed a popular audience who were possibly in danger of looking to Ireland. Uh, and this was one of many works that was really aimed at showing the danger of using um, an Irish revolution that seemed to have turned bad uh, for uh, a domestic proletariat. Um, of course, uh, many Marxist and socialist writers of the interwar era in England um, took a much easier route than Rowley and they simply avoided revolutionary Ireland altogether. And, and the East 1916 narrative becomes noticeable by its absence from certain connections between the two countries. Uh, and uh, there is a, a very strong Marxist, English Marxist utopianism, a utopian strain that looks instead to the West of Ireland and to the timeless image of communitarianism in the West as a model for an English utopian uh, Marxism. This is particularly the, uh, the route taken by another English figure at large in Ireland during the interwar decades, um, the classicist George Thompson. And George Thompson, uh, Cambridge classicist uh, and Marxist, uh, um, went to the Blasket Islands in the 1920s to uh, pursue his love of the Irish language um, and went on uh, through his passage in, in becoming much closer and much more uh, senior in, in uh, the British Marxist movement and indeed through his circle of um, contemporaries at Birmingham University, would go on to write in several books about the classics, including his 1945 book, Marxism and Poetry, would write back to the Blasket Island model um, as this aspirational utopian um, incarnation of what uh, an English Marxist utopia, a pre-capitalist utopia could look like. Uh, of course, he's not the first to do that. Connolly himself had, had said very much the same thing, um, but that was one English route to using Ireland, but, but circumnavigating or avoiding the problems of a revolution that um, had seemed to, to turn sour. And it's quite surprising that um, when you look at Thompson's career, he spent a lot of time in Dublin in the 1920s. So it wasn't as if he hadn't noticed what was going on. It wasn't as if he wasn't aware of um, a post-Civil War fallout, uh, but he was very much about um, uh, leapfrogging that and, uh, and using the west of the island of, of Ireland instead. Uh, so let me come back to my main theme, my main question. How did a, a pool of left-leaning Marxist, communist, and socialist writers right across that range 
how did they in England accommodate an Ireland which had such a, a contradictory revolutionary profile? And why indeed did they turn to Ireland? After all, Russia uh, had, had left a, a much more significant fallout, uh, a blueprint that could be used. And indeed, English socialism had its own chartist and, uh, and socialist antecedents to look back to. If you look at publishing in the interwar era in England, there's a notable increase in historical novels being produced that uh, uh, tell the story of the English Revolution, for example. Um, and uh, Montague Slater himself went on to produce a pageant called Heirs to the Charter. So there was a, a great interest in using England's own revolutionary history to um, inspire uh, revolutionary socialism in the 1930s in particular. Um, Ireland was also, I suspect, made more difficult as a blueprint because of the very diverse cohort of Irish socialist and communist exports and writers who were at large in interwar Britain and, and particularly London. Uh, because if you look at that landscape, you can see figures such as Sean O'Casey on the left, uh, Maureen Mitchell, the journalist, Liam O'Flaherty, the, the writer and, uh, um, and journalist, uh, and, and all of these figures, even in that group of three, had very differing responses to um, Ireland's experience as a model for any kind of English socialism. And much has been written, of course, on these connections by historians such as David Convery, Emmett O'Connor, and others. Uh, a recent, and I think very valuable account of Ireland's literary exiles, socialist literary exiles, in the 1930s has just been written by Katrina Goldstone, uh, Irish writers and the 30s. And Goldstone looks at the group that surrounded the poet, Leslie Dakin, author of the, the brilliantly titled Goodbye Twilight. Uh, and Dakin and his contemporaries um, in London really were able to close that gap between the two capitals, between Dublin and London in terms of Irish socialist activity, and they maintained Irish visibility in the activist networks that formed in London uh, around uh, the Left Review or Our Time, the, the journals of the era, or around the London branch of the Republican Congress uh, from 1934 onwards, or very extensively through the left theatre movement that I began with. Um, but again, these were writers who had very diverse perspectives and, and ambitions for socialism itself. Uh, and uh, again, I think their own experience led to um, an understandable caution that uh, Ireland in any way provided a model of socialist revolution. Um, and we'll come back to that. Um, so they add a kind of further layering to the circulation of Irish revolutionary models or templates within the kind of metropolitan conversations that were going on in the interwar era. What changed things, and I think intensified the focus on Ireland was what happened in Spain. Um, because in the 1930s, the escalation of the situation in Spain introduces a kind of bifocalism for English uh, intellectuals and writers that keeps Ireland and Spain uh, in, in view simultaneously in this period. 
um, in a kind of near and, and, and far historical vision. Um, Ireland is very much, and again, you will know this, a reference point for the international brigades and for members of the literati who began to be oriented towards the Spanish conflict. And it's very interesting to see how Irish voices uh, stake a claim, I think, and make their presence felt in this space. Uh, in 1937, the newly established Left Review um, produced its uh, document, Authors Take Sides on the Spanish Civil War. And this was a compilation of responses that was um, solicited by the writer Nancy Cunard. And Cunard had requested that her fellow authors descend from their ivory towers and actually uh, answer the question, are you for or against the Spanish Republic? So it was a kind of uh, poll uh, that went out to numerous writers of the period, including several Irish authors, uh, whose replies were again quite various. Um, Joyce famously recorded that he had received the request, but he remained silent on the issue. Um, Samuel Beckett um, famously uh, issued the pithy but, but rather ambiguous up the Republic as his response. Um, but I think a very clear statement comes from the Marxist writer, Liam O'Flaherty, who uh, was very quick to gain mileage from the Spanish conflict's uh, potential replication of Irish uh, class politics. Uh, as an Irishman, he replied, I realize that the toiling masses of Spain are waging the same battle which we have waged for centuries in Ireland against landlordism and foreign imperialism. So a very clear directive there from O'Flaherty as to this being uh, the same struggle rather than a completely different kind of conflict. So Spain brings Ireland back into view in a, a very complex way for English writers. Um, and there is no doubt when you look at the novels of this period that, that treat this subject, uh, it's very clear that the Irish Civil War looms as a kind of ghost in the background of events in Spain. Uh, I think that the, the, the first conflict has a definite imaginative currency in the way that people thought about uh, what was happening in Spain. One conflict transferring a kind of imaginative energy to the second. And this is increased by the personalities involved, several English authors and journalists in particular who were active in Spain in the 1930s had in fact cut their political teeth in Ireland in uh, the early 1920s or indeed back in 1916. Uh, writers such as Gerald Brennan uh, and a very young V.S. Pritchett uh, moved between the two locations. And they added to the connective tissue that would build up around the creative writers who were mobilized by the Spanish conflict. Uh, the novelist Kate O'Brien, of course, who would write very interestingly on, on both countries. And uh, the poet Charles Donnelly, who went to fight in Spain and of course uh, in 1937 was killed. Um, it goes without saying that the, the political prompts uh, for the Spanish conflict were completely different. Uh, and so too was the, the modus operandi of the, 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 the military and the guerrilla campaigns in each case. But I think that for writers, and this is where the imaginative quality of the novel comes into play, for writers, many of the emotional uh, resonances 
and the literary imaginings that resulted was similar because what Spain, the terrible uh, vista of Spain replicated um, from the Irish narrative were themes such as the idea of betrayed ideals or corrupted and wasted youth. And then that confusion of loyalties and the splitting of families, uh, the, the con contradictions of faith and the Catholic church. And of course, this, this overarching narrative of a, a divided nation, the saga of a divided nation. So you do get reverberations between the two landscapes uh, sounding in the writings of that section of the English literati that did hold a, a kind of image of romantic Ireland in its wing mirror while it went to Spain with the international brigades. And you see that the kind of squeezing together or the concatenation of uh, Ireland's revolutionary decade and the Spanish Civil War um, in the work of uh, an English left-wing literati who are maneuvering between the two. And you see this not only in the kind of Mandarin writings of a modernist imagination, which is my main interest, but also very much in the middle-brow genres, the thriller and the romance, and indeed the, the historical novel um, that are so popular at this time. And this is what I'll, I'll turn to for the remainder of my talk. So I'm going to talk about um, a writer called Ethel Mannon. If uh, Quiver, you would please uh, move on to the next slide. I think again, many of you will have heard of Ethel Mannon, um, very interesting writer, one of the most prolific left-wing novelists, journalists, travel writers of the interwar period and the 1940s. Mannon uh, was London born, but she claimed Irish descent. And throughout her life, she pursued a number of Irish interests. I'm putting that in a very polite way because it, of course, that includes her relationship, her romantic relationship with W.B. Yeats. And she corresponded with Yeats in uh, the 1930s. Um, Manon wrote uh, about the Easter Rising. She was very enthusiastic about the role played by women at uh, the barricades or, or in the Rising, including Constance Markievicz, Hannah Sheehy's Geffington, and, and she celebrated these figures in her 1938 uh, Women and the Revolution. Um, but she looked with very visible dismay, as many of her contemporaries did, at what she saw as the betrayals of the idealism of 1916 that followed in the course of the Civil War. And this lapsarian narrative, the idea of an ideal that collapsed or a betrayed ideal, I think plays out in relief to what Manin's political life in England um, pursued. Uh, she had a series of engagements and also embittered disengagements with various factions of the left in 1930s Britain. Uh, she joined the breakaway independent Labour Party in 1933. She went to Russia twice. She championed the cause of the communists in Spain. But she gradually found that the, the, the factionalism of the British left was just too dispiriting. And she turned her back then on the labor movement, very disillusioned by its petty wrangling, as she saw it, uh, and indeed by uh, some increasingly Trotskyite tendencies uh, and populist tendencies. Um, and she eventually re retreated from the front line of politics in 1939 and moved briefly to live in the west of Ireland, though she had to then move back because of the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, 
It looks as if she was a very politically capricious figure and, and Roy Foster has described her as being or as having obstinately political priorities, uh, which I think makes her sound a bit of a harpy. And, and possibly this is why she has, as one commentator suggests, been written out of the history of the 1930s left. Uh, but in fact, many of her contemporaries were just as changeable in their attitudes to a riven English socialism. I think her being written out also has a lot to do with uh, critical hierarchies and literary hierarchies because Manon's fiction, uh, and it's extensive, she wrote over a hundred books, but much of her fiction turns to formulaic uh, middle-brow genres of romance and historical saga. Um, but I see her very much as a writer of the, the late modernist middle-brow, a very subversive use of the romance format in particular that's highly intertextual and that is very closely tuned to a, a changing political and economic environment. Uh, and many skeptical interwar women writers in particular did use or exploit middle-brow genres such as the romance uh, to give them uh, what we might think of as ideological cover. It was a way of smuggling quite political narratives into formats that would be widely read and indeed would be published. This was a way into a commercial publishing industry. Um, and this is particularly the case uh, in, in Spanish Civil War narratives that frequently women writers of the era wrote about the Spanish Civil War in exactly the same way as they would write about the Irish Revolutionary Era in middle-brow formats and, and particularly in the romance. Um, but it doesn't mean that they weren't very closely observant of the political contradictions um, that were involved. Um, so I want to talk about two of, uh, for the rest of, of this talk, two, two of Manon's Irish-related works. And this is uh, because these are texts which I think have a very close bearing on this um, unique triangulation in the 1930s of English, Irish, and Spanish landscapes. Um, and what you'll see from all of Manon's writing in this period that, that picks up on the Irish story is that she was very much uh, uh, using an Irish revolutionary history as a stick to beat a failed English socialism. Uh, so in a way, it's very exploitative in, in its use of Ireland. If um, uh, Quiver can put up the next slide, this is, this is probably a, a work that I think some of you will be familiar with. Comrade, oh comrade, low down on the left, um, which was published in 1945 by Gerald, so a, quite a well-known publisher of the period in London. Um, and this is um, a comic picaresque that uh, turns to a kind of West of Ireland peasant utopia of the kind that, that George Thompson mentioned earlier, uh, was so keen to celebrate, but does so in order to lampoon what Manon had regarded or what she regarded as the narcissistic vanities of uh, interwar English socialist movements. Um, it was written while she was in England in 1945. And you'll see from the, the front page here that uh, it's illustrated. The illustrations are by um, Leonard Bowden in pen and ink. And uh, Leonard Bowden, just a little bit of trivia for uh, the many fans of the royal family uh, who are joining us, went on to be a, a portrait painter for the British royal family. Um, but this was uh, 
some early work that he did and uh, the illustrations are terrific. And the one that you'll see on, on the page that's on the slide um, is very recognizably the figure of Emma Goldman, the, uh, the American anarchist, the anarchist syndicalist uh, and socialist who uh, worked with Manon in uh, the 1930s. They organized meetings together, but she's very much a figure who'll be lampooned in the course of Comrade O'Comrade as one of the many factionalizing figures uh, on the British scene in the period. Uh, so Comrade O'Comrade is very much about um, caricaturing the, the vanities of a British left wing that fiddles while Spain burns and is caught up in the kind of racketeering and propaganda campaigns and controversies that of course had, had turned Orwell uh, away from uh, the left in Britain and Orwell and Manin were friends in this period. Um, and what Manin does in this text is to bring in the figure of a West of Ireland peasant fisherman called Larry Lanigan. If you go onto the next slide, in fact, Quiva, uh, you'll see the illustrations for this. Um, on the left, you'll see uh, the basic story of, of this text is um, Lanigan is a peasant fisherman uh, and he's picked up in probably all senses of that word uh, by uh, an English uh, socialist intellectual called Isinglass, Peter Isinglass, who comes over to Connemara, recognizably Connemara, to preach to the peasants on Marxist orthodoxy uh, and decides that having found this um, peasant with all his what's described as Gaelic sex appeal, that he'll take him to England and educate him in socialism um, so that he can then extend uh, the, the revolutionary message. Um, the plan goes awry immediately because um, uh, Larry Lanigan turns up to go to London, very excited in his best Sunday suit. Uh, and of course, uh, what uh, Isinglass had imagined was that he could take him as the authentic fisherman in his corduroys and, uh, and worsted tweeds. So as soon as they get to London, um, Lanigan has to change again back into his uh, corduroys. And there's a lot of this play on uh, Irish-English stereotypes that go on. And a terrific scene on the way to L London, in fact, where the two of them stop off in Dublin and uh, crash uh, a comrades, party comrades meeting um, that's going on in, in behind a books, bookstore in, in Strand Street in Dublin. Um, and there's some comedy about uh, the uselessness of, of the Irish uh, communist branch as well, um, which I think upset some of the reviewers of the novel. Um, and you'll see that uh, what happens in the course of this book is uh, English socialism is exposed and the various salon cultures, the left, uh, left book reading groups, the communist summer schools, um, Larry Lanigan is taken round these, paraded round these in turn, all of them are useless, all of them break up in fights or disarray, and in the end he goes back to Galway, back to Connemara, and there's a kind of tongue-in-cheek reinvestment in the idea that only in the west of Ireland will you find a kind of true model of a, a communist community. Um, as I say, this is a better known book and uh, I think there's a lot to say about it, but I want to just finish by talking briefly about um, a much less known man, man in novel from two years earlier and Quiva, if you could give me, I think this is nearly the last slide, uh, this is called The Blossoming Bough from 1943. I would urge you to read it, but you may not enjoy it. And more than that, it's quite difficult to get hold of. Again, uh, my own copy sadly is without the dust jacket, but I did uh, through the magic of eBay manage to 
Identify the original dust jacket. This is also published by Gerald, but you'll see from the cover that this is very obviously a middle brow publication and it's presented as a romance novel with the literal blossoming bow on the front and, and the, uh, the title is taken from a Douglas Hyde poem. Um, but in fact, this is a, a very much darker work than Comrade O Comrade and it's a, a specific treatment of post-revolutionary Ireland in the context of working class socialist London and the Spanish Civil War. It is the story uh, of a young man uh, in, from the west of Ireland who um, has grown up in the spirit of Easter 1916 and, and imbibed all the rhetoric and all the legacies of that. But the novel begins very specifically in 1933 in uh, a west of Ireland village, which is still very obviously, first of all, in the shadow of the 1932 election um, and is testing out the values of a de Valera administration, which is seen very much as um, the selling out of proper Republican ideals. De Valera is going to turn uh, Ireland into, as it's put, uh, a nation of shopkeepers like the English, um, and that this is a, a state which has sold out. Um, whereas Flynn Harrington, our young protagonist, is still driven by the values of 1916. Uh, I'll just show you a bit of the text uh, to, to move towards a conclusion. Uh, Quiva, if you could just move on to the, the final slide. Uh, so you'll see the kind of language we start out the novel with. His blood stirred with the names of Tone and Emmett, Mitchell and O'Brien and the heroes of Easter week, Casement and the 16 who were shot uh, and nothing would stir him like this again. He's quite prepared to die in the same cause. Um, but Flynn Harrington as a young uh, Irishman is very careful that what he wants to uh, sacrifice himself for is the cause of Connolly and an international revolutionary socialism, not the limited um, Republican ethos that uh, he now sees at play in Ireland. So he decides that he will leave Ireland and he goes off on a kind of, as, as heroes and protagonists of this period do, on that kind of gap year style tour of Europe, goes to Paris, travels through Germany and so on, and ends up in London in the mid 1930s where he's taken in by a working class family in the London Docklands area. And one of the things that's so useful about uh, The Blossoming Bough for me is that Manon's descriptions of working class London um, point up the fact that it looks exactly the same as working class Dublin. Even some of the street names are the same. And that the working classes in both locations therefore uh, have the same goals, have the same commitments. And this is the lesson that Flynn is supposed to learn. He's taken in by a family who teach him about Marx, who teach him uh, about William Morris, but who also have Connolly um, on, uh, on their bookshelves. And they try to persuade him that the looming war in Spain is not the right cause. It is much like what they've seen happen in Ireland, distracted by both nationalist and imperial values. And it's not in the true interest of a revolutionary socialism, but he doesn't quite listen. He doesn't quite get there. He decides he's learned enough. Uh, he takes the values of, of uh, fighting in 1916 forward as his blueprint, and of course goes down to the local Labour Party offices and signs up for the international brigades. And you'll know because it's the formulaic um, standard formula of, of the uh, 
Spanish Civil War novel of this period, but he's not going to survive. Um, he gets um, caught up with the wrong side. He's injured. He's caught up with another wrong side because there is no right side in the conflict. Um, and he is uh, executed. And you'll see in the, in the second paragraph that's on the slide that the scene of his execution is also overlaid with his thinking about how he's still living out the cause of Easter 1916, even at the point um, that, uh, that he is executed in Spain. And as Manon constructs that scene in Spain, uh, which I don't have time to, to go into, um, the description is very much itself a replaying of romantic versions of execution scenes in the Irish War of Independence and the Irish Civil War. There's a very deliberate staging of it. So it looks again as if it could be happening in Ireland. Um, so the Blossoming Bar doesn't quite work. It tries to do too much. It tries to pack in too much scenery of the age. Uh, but I think it's very clear that what Manning wants to show is that there can be no proper alignment, no useful alignment between an Irish revolutionary experience and what English socialism is confronting in the 1930s in relation to Spain. It's a mismatch. Uh, and the, the vanities and indulgences and distractions of the English left in the 1930s that she castigates in Comrade O'Comrade, and again in The Blossoming Bough, uh, have blinded an English movement to that, that reality. And of course, innocents such as Flynn Harrigan get caught up in the rhetoric, caught up in the crossfire, and they are the ones who are sacrificed uh, as a result. What you'll see, I think, is that uh, Manon's fiction of the early 1940s, and, and these two novels in particular, they're very much, um, I think, curiosities of this period and of this uh, unique political confluence between uh, Irish experience, English socialism, and the Spanish Civil War. Um, and they're very much about satirizing the love affair between English socialism uh, and Irish revolutionary um, politics. Like many novels of the 1940s, they're very obsessive in reviewing the 1930s, the previous decade, to try to make sense of political roads that weren't taken, and really to try and explain why uh, 1939 happened, why the Second World War came to pass. Um, and I think that they're very interesting remnants of this very volatile, uh, triangular literary geography um, between England, Spain, and bringing in Ireland, and an Irish legacy, which in theory should have provided an impetus for English socialism, um, but in the end, I think, became a, a recurrent thorn in the side of, of English revolutionary ambitions. And at that point, I'm probably well overdue to, to draw to a close. Thanks very much. That was really interesting. And of course, it started various bees, but rebuzzing in, in my bonnet. But I'll begin with the question, but I'll begin with the two confessions. I've seen Downton Abbey and I haven't seen Peaky Blinders, but both feature as a routine motif and our Irish revolutionaries in some way or another. And I just wonder how much in lowbrow literature of the kind that in some ways Keith Jeffrey and I wrote about many years ago, thrillers, murders, all this kind of thing in the interwar period, which after all probably sold a thousand copies for every one of, of the highbrow stuff published by Lawrence Wishart or whatever. But where, where are, are there Irish themes? For instance, Bulldog Drummond, 
which are so terrible, I've only read a couple, but he has Jews, he has Bolsheviks, he has hints of Irish, he has all these kind of things. And these were being read in the hundreds of thousands, uh, you know, bought on the on train, train station bookstalls and things. And where, I'm just wondering, is, is, there, is there also in, in, in the lowbrow, and have we studied the low, lowbrow, if you like, in popular literature? Uh, and not only of the left, but obviously of the right as well, because a lot of these people were writing with a very sort of gung-ho imperialist sort of approach. Exactly. And, and you're quite right. And obviously your own work on this union, I think, started many balls rolling um, in terms of looking at the popular thriller of, of not only of this period, but right through to the 1950s. And of course, you get the collision with cinema and, and what happens in uh, 30s and 40s in um, film noir and in, in British cinematic uses of the, the Irish Republican remnant, the leftover figure. Um, there's no way we can trace them all because as you'll have seen with my struggle to get hold of uh, a copy of Revolt, um, many of them have just gone, even uh, uh, in copyright libraries such as our own, we don't have most of them. There's a writer called Andy Croft who's got an absolutely terrific book called Red Letter Days, which compiles a lot of the revolutionary popular novels of this period. And he's also um, looked at a couple of Irish elements, but by no means all. And uh, it's one of the problems, I think, that anybody looking at the popular and even middlebrow um, uses of, of this kind of influence uh, would have is simply tracking down that extensive primary material. Um, but I think, in a way, what's more interesting for me is, is when the modernists and the, um, the highbrows <laughs> get hold of the same figure and what they do with it. And when you see Wyndham Lewis um, creating a, a Gothic version of the, the post-IRA revolutionary, who is a kind of shapeshifter, the, the, the menacing figure is, is that it's not any longer a, a random um, revolutionary figure on the run. It's someone who is infiltrated in the English salons. Uh, and very specifically in that novel, uh, the figure who was the character who is called uh, Sean O'Hara thinks about changing his name to Sam Harris, in other words, to becoming anglicized, and he disguises his Irish accent so that he can work underground as if he were English. Um, and there's a much more modernist play on the identity politics involved. So I think that side is is there's more work to do there as well, even before you get near. Um, uh, the, the, the possible but unprovable um, Irish revolutionary um, pickups that you'd see in someone like Graham Greene. Yeah. Um, and, and I know you've thought about this in relation to uh, how Ernie O'Malley, um, mm. you know, is, is a basis for possible characters in, uh, in Chandler and so on. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating story for me. Um, uh, one that I think there's a lot more to do on. Okay, I'm just looking at some of our questions. Uh, whoops, sorry. Uh, um, Nora Moroni uh, says, great talk. She's wondering uh, if, if Orwell, with his interest in the Spanish Civil War and the various iterations of the English left, had anything to say about Ireland and are the revolutions there? Yeah, yeah, great question, Nora. You'd think he'd say a bit more than he did. It's annoying to me how quiet, I mean, he does have some comments and we can get to some of his comments. Uh, through what he wrote on Yeats. But what you want Orwell to do, of course, is to come in with a great big blanket treatment of, of Irish history. Um, and we don't have that. 
Um, there are some occasional comments. And then I think there are important points of connection through, um, um, and Katrina Goldstone writes about this through uh, one of the writers of the 30s, Irish writers called Michael Saylor, if I remember the name correctly, who became a very close friend of Orwell's and worked with him in London uh, and collaborated with him on various journalistic um, ventures. So there are a lot of personal connections that go through Orwell, um, but we don't get the kind of comment. And it would be interesting to speculate on what he, um, he did say various things, but, but what he um, would have said, not so much about uh, the early part of the revolution in Ireland and not so much about 1916, but about the aftermath of the civil war and about um, that very volatile phase through uh, of Irish, uh, I suppose an Irish historical narrative um, coming out of the civil war and, and the impact of that, you know, at a time when Ireland looked as if it wasn't going to settle again, as if there was going to be no solution uh, in 1921-22, what he would have said about that period and the opportunities then for a very dangerous form of, uh, uh, of further revolutionary activity. Um, so um, I think, again, there's probably more to be said about Orwell, but um, people have written a little bit on Orwell in Ireland, but he's not there as a major influence in, in this uh, discussion. Right. Certainly advising Manon from behind the scenes on steering well clear of um, the, the British uh, Labour Party in particular, as you know, we had very strong feelings on. Uh, and, and again, linked to the sort of lowbrow, is there anything, yeah, because if you look at, say, at Scotland and Wales, right, where you do have a narrative there, you have a, you have a nationalist narrative, an extremist narrative, a small group, again, with, with literary sort of links and so on. Is there any, uh, is it is it unfair to ask even, is there, are there any sort of echoes in their English language even writings of, of, the, of those kind of people, of, of, if you like, of the literary side of Welsh nationalism, the literary side of Scottish nationalism, uh, you know, about uh, relating to Ireland. Yeah, I, I deliberately am looking at England, Union, um, not because there aren't uh, those lateral connections going on between um, Scotland and, and to a lesser extent Wales, but because they're just so complicated, um, I think You'd get, for example, uh, there's quite an interesting a lineup of, of um, revolution in Glasgow, potential revolution in Glasgow uh, in relation to 1916 and in relation to what's going on down in the London government in John Buchan in uh, Mr. Stanfirst. Yeah. It's a very early uh, novel in terms of what I'm talking about. Um, but it's very, very important in that novel that Buchan shows yeah. the Scottish. Um, the Scottish Socialist movement was not going to turn in favour of what he refers to, of course, he was very down on 1916, of what he refers to, or what one of his characters in that novel refers to as a wee bobby rebellion. Um, yeah. This has been a, an absolute betrayal of um, Britain's war effort, of course, coming in the middle of the First World War. So I think there are some very interesting, there's some very interesting manoeuvring of um, what I'll call the other nations um, in the wider story of what I'm talking about. And the other thing that, of course, is going on, and you see this particularly in, in a writer like D.H. Lawrence, uh, is the argument that we're seeing the end of England and that England is going to be humiliated and displaced by the Celtic fringe. 
and that this is the revenge of the Celts and that the Celts are now where we must look to uh, for kind of spiritual renewal because England is finished and revolutionary England is finished. Um, and Lawrence very carefully um, splits uh, in, in his lineup of Celticism revolutionary Ireland, which he sees very much as part of a failed European revolutionary system from a Celtic orthodoxy and energy um, which can survive and which can be a kind of spiritual uh, investment. Um, so how Celticism is, is maneuvered into place and Wyndham Lewis does the same thing is also part of that discussion. And I'll be quite honest with you, it's, it's just bigger than I can um, understand because I think um, those are very important relationships um, and uh, I, I, I just wanted to focus on England, partly because of English nationalism, which I think is very strong in this period and does look very frequently to Ireland and, and Irish national models for inspiration. Yeah, I, I read the Daily Telegraph every day. I look at it for my sins. And if you want to see English nationalism almost reborn uh, with this new Christ in number 10, you know, it's amazing. Uh, but sorry, that's my Daily Telegraph piece. Um, Lauren Arrington uh, uh, says, superb paper, Eve, thank you. Great to hear so much about detail about Manon. She's very interested in your description at the start of your talk of the left theater production of Easter of 1916 as quote, experimental, alongside the Marxist utopianism of some of the novelists you discuss. Have you found that quote, right-wing and left-wing authors writing about Ireland generally use different aesthetics? Are the right-wing English novelists committed to realism, for example? Well, thanks, Lauren. Uh, and no, not at all. Um, I mean, very often it's it's the the right-wing novelists who are, you, who are using much more experimental um, dream sequences, for example, as as Lawrence does in in Kangaroo, um, or um, Wyndham Lewis uh, uh, in uh, a novel I've talked about quite a lot. Um, uh, from the late 1920s called The Apes of God. Uh, and this is a very, very interesting novel because it covers the uh, English salon culture of Bloomsbury in 1926 at the time of the general strike. And the, the coda for the novel was written as the strike erupted on the streets of London and Britain generally. And of course, Lewis, like many writers of the period, Virginia Woolf and, and various others, thought that this was the beginning of the English socialist revolution. So there's an immediate pulling back to Irish history for parallels. And Lewis has this very surrealist dream vision where his Irish protagonist on the loose in London as the strike is, is erupting into violence, seems to look down through the pavement, look down beneath the pavement uh, to the 1916 rebellion. Um, so you get this sense that an Irish history is almost underneath an English history and waiting to erupt. And that kind of surrealist uh, or even cubist, given that it's Lewis, that kind of that rendering of um, the relationship between the two countries is I think something that you put alongside the, the, the realist treatments of a more popular um, and uh, I suppose left-wing um, narrative that you'd see in, in the romances and the historical sagas. I can't say much more about theatre. I think there's a lot more going on in popular theatre at the period as well. I mean, there are plays about, you know, still plays about the, the Irish Paddy figure that are running in London's West End in the early 1920s for two, three years, the runs of some of these plays. Uh, and one thing that I didn't expect to come through as strongly in the book, but I, in the end I had to write a whole chapter on it, is caricature. 
that something you think would have died out with a 19th century, you know, a Victorian version of the stage Irishman, that caricature becomes remobilized and re-energized on writers from all sides in England in the way that they use Ireland. And uh, I, I got very interested in that. And that's a form that takes you right through Manon, obviously, but up to later figures of the 1940s, uh, including um, Evelyn Waugh and, uh, and in particular T.H. White. Um, oh, yeah writes his Arthurian, much of his Arthurian uh, yeah. version about the Arthurian legend, The Sword in the Stone. Much of that, of course, is written while he was in Ireland during yeah. the 1940s, during the war. And uh, you just say stage paddies, what about, are there many stage bridges? Or is this large, in terms of gender, is, is what happens there? It's everybody, it's right. everybody. Um, in, um, in The Blossoming Bough, in fact, we've just been talking about, there's a long, caricaturing of uh, the Irish revival. And it's particularly the, the Gaelic revival and the Celtic twilight that comes in for a lot of this caricature treatment. But there's a long uh, um, sequence of digs at the Irish literary theater and the fact that this poor actress, who's the, the main character's cousin, um, who's a kind of caricatured Colleen figure has become trapped in this stale world of Irish theater which swings, as Manon describes it, uh, between um, the, you know, the horrendous, tedious social realism that you get with O'Casey back to uh, the fantasies and mythologies of, of Singh. Um, so um, no women are certainly in there too, but it, it's, it's more, I think, um, the, what I write about in particular is the idea that, that uh, Ireland becomes a subject for caricaturing the idea of excess itself, that they seem to have overproduced, that the nation in trying to form itself has, has produced excess. There's too much writing. They all talk too much. And, and the, the Irish writer or the Irish figure at large in London and talking too much is a recurrent source, a subject of caricature from Yeats right through to uh, Graham Greene's version of uh, Sean O'Casey, who turns up in It's a Battlefield in 1934 and, and you know sits at the dinner table and just talks endlessly at people um, so um, so that's deviation from what I'm talking about today but but very much so it's uh, there's a whole new energy given to caricature I think which of course is is very popular in this period anyway and and uh, the Irish were delighted to caricature themselves in this period and particularly in the counter revival to parody their own literary movement and to parody Yeats and so on, um, but it's picked up in England. Because you mentioned O'Casey, and obviously he's a, in some ways, a counterweight to a lot of, a lot of stuff like this. And do we know how he responded to this kind of literature and so on? Did, did he? No, I don't. Into it? Did he applaud yeah. it? Did he um, hate it? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a whole body of material, but no, I, I think it'd be quite interesting to to get his response to the extent that he might have read any of it or seen some of the theater. Um, O'Casey doesn't get as much attention as I expected and nor does Yeats and the figure that dominates by far the English literary scene and gets by far the most references is, is J.M. Singh. And it sings theater and sings the Aran Islands um, that is a constant point of reference for English writers on both sides of the political divide in the interwar. And it's, it's, uh, it's thing that they go back to. 
in both positive and, and negative terms, right up as far as uh, where I stop really, which is PG Woodhouse. Yeah. Uh, you know, with playing on the idea of, of a, a, a J.M. Singh play um, in novels of the 1940s. So obviously that again is caricature. Um, so that took me by surprise. I didn't expect that imprint to come through so strongly. Right. Uh, Patrick Mom uh, asks, is there much material by leftists from Anglo-Irish backgrounds? Cecil Day Lewis's first novel had a, mi has a minor subplot, the execution by the IRA of the protagonist's Irish Protestant uncle after he had formed the crown forces of a planned ambush. Uh, the uncle is presented as a well-meaning and naive knife, excuse my pronunciation, uh, who never expected his action to have consequences. So that's Patrick's. Uh, that, that's really helpful. Thanks, Patrick. And that's really helpful. And I looked at bringing in, I'm trying to avoid the Anglo-Irish, uh, like Bowen, McNeese, um, uh, and indeed uh, Day-Lewis, uh, or Nicholas Blake, and his other name. Um, but I did look at him a little bit for this chapter, because obviously his own um, left-wing um, tendencies uh, were very relevant here. Um, but, I, but I haven't used him. And some of the novels I'd like to have looked at, he's got a um, a kind of faux, faux big house, Irish big house novel, the title of which has just uh, gone from my head. Um, but they're a little bit too late for what I wanted to do. Um, but I think it's, it's important to remember him here in the circle of influential figures who were grouped around um, English socialist writers. And he's very influential, um, of course, across the um, the, the, the Auden movement, uh, and there he is, you know, playing alongside Auden, Stephen Spender, and so on, um, in, in steering English socialism uh, in a particular way. Um, but no, I haven't brought him in, and uh, I might follow up with you on, on that novel in particular, because I, I don't know if you mentioned the date, Yunan, of that. Uh, no, uh, Patrick, I, I, no, I, I, I don't see it if he did. Yeah. It just says first novel. So that's uh... okay, right. Let's trace that up. Uh, no, there are lots of figures who'd be, be terrific to bring in. Dennis Johnston is another one who I think is uh, extremely important at this time. Um, but um, <laughs> I'm already beyond my word limit. So um, alas. Well, on that, we have an anonymous question uh, uh, saying, fascinating, thanks. You have me wondering if Robert and Sylvia Lind were relevant to your analysis of the interwar years? Um, I have Robert Linden uh, right at the very beginning of what I'm writing because uh, he has um, a really interesting essay uh, in which he asks the question if um, Kipling had uh, lived in Ireland and Joyce had lived in England, would Kipling have written Portrait of the Artist? and Joyce have written Storky and Co. Um, wow. And it's a terrific question, which, you know, you, it actually makes you think, well, and his argument is no, that the artist's personality rises above political and national circumstances, and they would have written very much the same book. I completely disagree with him. Um, but Robert Lind was such a talented journalist, I think, on this era. Um, and uh, he's one of many people, along with uh, figures such as Stephen Gwynne um, in, in the earlier period in the 1920s, who are slightly below the radar in terms of constantly making these interesting connections. Later on, Hubert Butler, of course, is going to be another, uh, constantly 
making the connections in a more subtle way than what I've been looking at today between Irish experience, Irish historical experience, and England's self-imagining in this period. Um, so, so yes, in short, he does make an appearance, uh, Sylvia not, but, um, but I think um, uh, there are various figures like that who, who um, come into the kind of margins of what I'm talking about and probably deserve more attention. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, the visual artists who were at work in London, but had trained in Ireland or, or grown up in Ireland and were using Irish materials, um, such as Beatrice Glenavy, um, Beatrice oh, right. Campbell as was, yeah. uh, and uh, um, who was a very, I think, a very big influence on D.H. Lawrence. Um, they moved in the same circles and knew each other. Um, and again, there's that visual side of what how Ireland was represented in England at this time, coming out of the revival in, in um, Beatrice Campbell's illustrations, for example, which would have been circulated quite widely in London circles, at least in uh, illustrations for AE's books and so on. And right the way through, of course, to the much more cliched material that you then end up with in the 1930s, 1940s, um, with the uh, Paul Henry cloudscapes of the West, uh, which are parodied very much, I think, in Evelyn Waugh's writing. You mentioned Sorkin Co. I mean, Kipling, I, I mentioned it in something I wrote about, about Kim, but he's obsessed, ironically, already without being Irish. Well, directly Irish, with the Irish. In Stalkian Co, he has, I think, is it a, which I read as a kid, he, there's a, it might be a tinker singing a song which goes, Ara Patsy, mind the baby, Ara Patsy, mind the child. So he has an Irish stereotype, even in an early, you know, schoolboy, schoolboy uh, story. That, that's, that's, sorry, that's, that's my Kipling uh, out of the way. Can I ask you just uh, about another Irish writer who, who you haven't mentioned, uh, partly because there's a Trinity connection because the film of his book was actually filmed largely in college, uh, which is Michael Reardon Connor, who, who wrote Sh Shake Hands with the Devil, which was published in the early 30s and was banned here for a while, I think, because there was mention of a prostitute or something like that. But, but he, he's an example. I don't know whether he, I mean, I think he sold a lot of books and he wasn't quite lowbrow. But does he does he come at you, sort of within the can of the, of the of these sort of circles and so on? No, I have I know who you're talking about. And I think Katrina Goldstone might touch on him if I remember. But I haven't uh, I haven't seen him. Um, and uh, no, I mean again, you know, I, in a, in a proper survey of this literary landscape, but actually also looked at the publishing context. And, and one of the reasons I was so keen to show people the books is it, it's so important and Nora Moroni who's listening will know this to, to not only look at these books but to ask about where they're published and where they're republished um, because it can tell you a lot about how seriously they were taken uh, and there you have um, you know uh, Manin's books for example some of them get lost and they stay with Gerald's and they're never reprinted but some of them are taken up and, and republished by Penguin um, yeah. um, you know classics and there's her autobiography you can see that confession yeah, yeah. impressions you know beautifully put into uh, into penguin um, and obviously upgraded as a result um, and even in the reverse direction you have um ridiculous as it might sound sorry this is way off the point of your question but it's it's just so unlikely to me that this happened uh, but dh lawrence um 
started writing Women in Love more or less in a few days after he'd heard the news about the Irish rising. And I think it was possibly a big hidden impact on Women in Love. But of course, Women in Love, given the nature of the material that was in it, uh, uh, he couldn't find a publisher in England. And uh, he decided that, you know, he could get it published in Ireland and went into negotiations with Talbot Press uh, to get it published in, uh, in Dublin, which, um, you know, just is so unlikely. But unfortunately, we've got a little bit of the correspondence, but the trail goes cold on that. Um, there is, um, there's a hotel in Mayo, uh, which I'll probably keep nameless, but if you look at their website, uh, they advertise the fact that Lawrence wrote Women in Love while he was staying at that hotel in 1918. Uh, <laughs> wow. Not only unlikely, but also impossible. Lawrence couldn't possibly have traveled uh, anywhere at that period. He was under surveillance, but um, it's, uh, it would be a nice uh, link for me if that had been the case, but alas, no. Uh, but no, but the publishing context and roots for, uh, for this kind of material is very important. And sadly, why we do, we, we've lost so many of the, the popular uh, novels that would have been interesting to look oh, at. We've lost the, the dust covers, as you mentioned, which is a the terrible, a terrible thing not disaster. to have, uh, not to have the dust jackets and not to see who was endorsing them, how they were being marketed, what price they were. All of these things are very significant if they were being given the, the stamp of approval by any of the official parties or factions, um, either across socialism or, you know, the puff from G.K. Chesterton or whoever it might have yeah. been. Um, and uh, it's, there were a lot of English figures behind the scenes who were in either mobilizing Irish material, as the Wolfs were in, in the Hogarth Press. There were quite a few publications that come out addressing both sides of um, the Irish question, uh, looking at um, the situation with Ulster as well. Um, and you also have big players such as E.M. Forster, who's in the background of a lot of these enterprises and is a mentor to many of the writers who are looking at Ireland, including, of course, George Thompson, uh, the, the Marxist classicist who I mentioned earlier. It's, it's Forster who he persuades to come and visit him in the Blasket Islands and give his authority, lend his authority to this venture to publish Morris O'Sullivan's autobiography. Um, oh, yeah. Growing. And Forster writes the, the introduction to that book, the preface to that book, the English translation of it. Um, so I think there's a bigger picture of, of mobilizing Irish-English connections in literature that goes on behind the scenes um, from these bigger players as well. Because you mentioned you use again the U word for Ulster, which is, um, where's, where's uh, proletarian Belfast in all this? Where's partition in all this? There's the Lost Republic, there's the, you know, the petty, petty shopkeepers in charge from what you say, but where, where, where's the, uh, the, 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 uh, the grievance of the fourth green field and or where's the grievance of, of the oppressed sort of proletariat in Belfast for whom religion is used as a means of, you know, religious divide as a means of, of containing their natural sort of revolutionary instincts. Yeah, That's my next yeah it's, it's a good question. You do get it by the time you get to, um, and of course, you're going to see it in O'Casey, but uh, you get it, interestingly, in my other uh, um, um, interest in Olivia Manning in her very early novel, The Wind Changes, which is on um, the war, set during the War of Independence, but it does show both Belfast uh, and the Antrim coast and Dublin 
um, in and Dublin, of course, in in uh, conflagration in the period. Um, and I suppose that's one of the rarities that does bother to to go up north. A lot of travel writers were were doing it. A lot of travel writing was remarking on, you know, the the ease with which you cross the border as if it wasn't there. I mean, Betjeman, you know, delights on the idea that he can dance in the six counties and then dance back over the border into uh, era again in his letters, he talks about that. So you're getting it showing up a lot, but not perhaps in the novel. And one of the things that um, I think took me back a little bit with the whole book was the reliance in English writing on particular things and then other things are just missing. So you get lots of 1916. You get lots of Terence McSweeney and McSweeney is the figure along with Parnell who's probably referred to most. You get very little that tries to address in fiction anyway, the civil war. And, and, and I think it's presumably it was a difficult subject to understand, but also a lot of the literary material from Ireland itself didn't come out and I know uh, Anne Dolan can speak more to this. A lot of the publications about the Civil War are not really coming out till the 1930s at the earliest. Uh, so that kind of secondary texts that English writers are relying on, they don't get until you get republications of, you know, De Valera's uh, biography or of um, Michael Collins, of course, the famous bidding war over his memoirs, or you get um, uh, O'Malley um, again writing about his life until you get that into the, the kind of bloodstream of English writing, I suspect it was very difficult for English authors, not talking about Anglo-Irish here, but for English authors to see the Civil War and understand it. I mean, one of the writers who I think does have a go in a very displaced way is Graham Greene. Uh, Greene was sent over in 1923 to report on the end of the Civil War. He was working for a, a minor, um, journal at the time and he was sent over along many other journalists of course were in Dublin at the period um, but Graham Greene's response to what he saw in Dublin which is very brief unfortunately um, does give him a kind of blueprint for uh, let's call it uh, uh, the end game of a colonial relation um, you know he talks about the city in chaos the burning bridges and so on how much of that stays in his mind right the way through to the 1950s and to um, Our Man in Havana, that era of uh, his, um, his highbrow thrillers. I'm not sure. I do talk about Green quite a lot in another chapter, but, um, but that question of how difficult the Civil War is to see from outside, even when you get to looking at Spain, I think is something that, that plays on this a lot. I've just thought I have, a, I have a Catherine Cookson novel if you need one uh, on this Finnish civil war, which I couldn't believe. She, of course, wrote a book about Rooney, the hurler, as well. Anyway, uh, Patrick Maughan was just mentioned Sam Hannah Bell's The Hollow Ball, probably as an example of, of a sort of an Ulster, Ulster work. Uh, Deirdre McMahon asks, uh, Eva's mentioned the interest in Connolly, but what about Casement? Bloomsbury was interested in him. Very interesting. Deirdre, it's very good to, that you're there. And, and of course, Casement's a, a huge figure. And um, Casement, I mean, people were either um, lobbying for Casement at the time or later, of course, in the, I think in the late 1920s, they begin the campaign to bring his body back to Ireland. So, you know, he's constantly um, at the forefront of uh, um, 
kind of in British intelligentsia's uh, interest in, in Ireland and a very important point of connection. And he even shows up, I was just watching uh, for something else, um, 1946 uh, Launder and Gilead film, uh, I See a Dark Stranger. Um, and uh, this is about uh, yeah. the usual story of, you know, Ireland was full of spies in the Second World War, but right at the beginning of that, it's Casement's portrait that we're asked to look at um, and, and the, the, the ambiguity of Casement playing on the idea that the um, all identities in the whole landscape of wartime England and Ireland are ambiguous and changeable and volatile and so on. So I think Casement is a very important figure and, and Lauren Arrington, who's joining us as well, um, I know we'll have a lot more to say about him because, uh, um, and, and Lucy McDiarmid, of course, as well, who's written on, on Casement. Uh, but I, I don't touch on it except, you know, in, insofar as people refer to um, the, um, the casement situation, including um, another very important link figure in, in the chain in the 1920s, who was Ottoline Morel. Oh, yeah. And Ottoline Morel would assemble uh, the peaceniks at Garsington Manor and uh, talk to them about Ireland and, uh, of course, have many important Irish writers present as well. But... Uh, she was deeply traumatized by the casement situation, wrote about it quite a lot. And that would have been a, a, an influence on figures such as Lawrence, who she was in touch with. Right. Uh, Manus O'Reardon uh, mentions Pat O'Donnell's eyewitness account, Salud, an Irishman in Spain, published in Britain in 1937. Was it reviewed there? And he says, this is also a plug because the new edition, second edition can be ordered from Connolly Books with which Manus is associated as ah. a supporter. Oh, well, that's terrific. And it's a very, um, Pat O'Donnell is a very important figure because when I was trying to, um, I don't know, I don't know how Salud was, how Salud Spain was, was received, but um, Uta Mittermeier, who was one of my former research students, has written quite recently, I think, on O'Donnell. Um, but one of the potential models, I think, for the protagonist of Ethel Manon's The Blossoming Bough, along with Liam O'Flaherty merged with a kind of young Yates, merged perhaps again with a little bit of Joyce, but I'm pretty sure there's a, a Padder O'Donnell element in there as well, given the route that he took um, from Ireland to Spain. Um, so I, I suppose that's where he would show up, um, but uh, no thanks for that reminder. Uh, another uh, uh, sorry, link, uh, Cormac O'Malley uh, uh, asks, did you study J.J. Hardy's fiction in the 1930s? He was, he was formerly an intelligence officer in Dublin Castle who tortured people and so on, including Ernie O'Malley. And he makes references to a Dublin experience in his fiction. Because uh, Cormac has that his father, Ernie, made notes on Hardy's publications, uh, which, are in the, which are in the National Library. No, and I'm really grateful to Cormac for that uh, for that reference uh, because I don't know about it. Uh, yeah. I'm glad that he's here as well because uh, obviously I when I get onto the chapter on on Graham Greene, um, uh, it's uh, O'Malley who who comes into the field of vision there over on uh, the time that that Green spent in Apple um, and uh, Green had just finished what was working on the proofs of his great novel, The Heart of the Matter, set in uh, Africa at the time that he was in Apple. And this is when he um, is in contact with O'Malley and uh, 
I think that's an extremely interesting relationship and it's very difficult and this is where I, maybe Cormac could help me in the long run, very difficult to establish either what um, O'Malley had read of Green or what Green might have read of O'Malley. I'd be really keen to know more about that. Um, it's, uh, uh, I know that, because um, this is a two-way relationship, of course, the Irish writers were also reading yeah. um, English novels and being influenced by those blueprints. Um, so Lawrence's uh, um, movements in European history, for example, I know was one of the texts, D.H. Lawrence's history book, was one of the texts that O'Malley used as a teaching text when he was in Mexico, I think. Uh, and that's a very interesting correspondence because Lawrence writes an extremely pessimistic, apocalyptic coda to that book about modern day history and, and how we're all plunging into catastrophe. And uh, I, you know, you have to think about, well, how much of that material from an English side is reabsorbed into an Irish historical narrative and that's something that I don't we're even near beginning to to look at yet. Yeah, I, I thought it just occurred to me in relation to Casement. Does anyone write about Childers? Because after all, he he wrote this phenomenally successful book, The Riddle of the Sands, uh, uh, you know, which which is a really a pretty powerful Edwardian spy story, hinging on a traitorous Englishman, you know, Dolman or whatever, and um, and he himself dies a, a spectacularly tragic death. In 1922, executed, you know, devoured by the revolution, by, by the counter-revolutionaries, and yet does he, does he, does his story and his thing turn up at all? Because you would think he ticks a lot of boxes. He does. I, I, um, I see references to him, but I haven't looked into anything in detail. There's a brilliant uh, chapter on Childers in Nicholas Allen's new book, Irish Literature on the Coast, uh, which looks at the Riddle of the Sands, but also looks at all the, the, uh, the bibliography that's behind it and what. Um, what, what Childers was reading and what went into his, uh, uh, what, what went in to make that novel. Um, but um, again, he's, he's sort of peripheral to, to what I'm looking at, but I think he is definitely along with Casement there in the kind of bigger landscape of these, these intermediary figures. Mm. Uh, Patrick, again, yeah, uh, more Casement. Uh, yeah. um, Patrick. You know, it's an enormous fund of knowledge in the uh, many matters. It says Casement gets a mention in Green's the, the Ministry of Fear as an eccentric exception to the German ability to recruit traitors in World War One, as compared yep. to the Nazis' supposed ability to do so. He does, and I, I I know that that's an interesting novel because, of course, Hilf, I think his name is, who's the German spy in London, tries to escape to Ireland. He actually gets onto the train uh, to get to Ireland. I think there are a lot of hidden. Irish allusions in that novel, um, and uh, but but, but uh, casements there, and and for Green as well. Again, it's, it's McSweeney who comes up over and over again, um, right the way through to uh, the late short story. Um, Doctor Doctor Fisher of Geneva is it? Oh is yeah, the bomb party. The bomb party, party yeah. Which is really a, a a story about a suicidal England that's disappearing and. Uh, the model that is in the protagonist's mind is is McSweeney uh, in prison, starving uh, on, a, on a suicide mission. And it's a really interesting echo, much too late for what I'm talking about, um, but, uh, but that resonance is there. And Green is the most, you know, I was delighted to see John le Carre changing sides or admitting, uh, posthumously uh, admitting that he changed sides and, and uh, taken Irish nationality. But the other person who really should have done it is Green. 
or, or well, you know, he was he was so friendly with Kim Philby um, uh, in, in uh, MI6. He may have become a Soviet citizen. And it's curious there isn't much reflection on on that sort of. But that came later, I suppose, the realization of Soviet penetration of, of yeah, uh, through British yeah. universities, especially of, of uh, their future sort of administrative elite. Well, so, uh, George Thompson, of course, very close to Anthony Blunt, um, you know, friends from Cambridge onwards. And I think there's probably more behind the scenes in that relationship in terms of what Thompson may have been up to. Um, but uh, I'm speculating. Yeah, I'm just looking looking at the time and uh, various queries and things. Uh, uh, Peter Duffy, uh, who in fact I think was first in, apologies Peter, uh, asks, what was the response of the various Irish participants in the revolutionary period to its effect in the interwar period amongst the left and the literary? But all also more generally if time to elaborate i'm not quite clear what he means he say he, he, he i think what he's saying is what did irish revolutionaries think of how the irish revolution was then sort of incorporated into into english sort of literature in the 1930s do we know anything about that do you know i i it's a brilliant question um and of course one of the problems is many of the people who should have responded were dead you know that the, many of the references are to the uh, to the heroes of 1916 who've gone, or to later revolutionaries um, who, who've gone. So um, it, it's a very interesting question, but there isn't a solid answer in my mind to it. Right. Um, that's a pity. It's a sort of a, a downer on which to end um, because we've run out of time. We'll do more research, Eunan. We'll do more, but can't, you know, must do more research. It's a great, great recommendation. Okay, before I thank you uh, for, for dealing with all these questions and, and for your terrific presentation, and we all look forward. What's the title of your book exactly? Uh, do you know, I can't, it's called uh, Ireland Revolution and the English Modernist Imagination. Oh, Again, are the dates? Uh, it's 1912 to 1948. All right. So, so, so it's a very uh, broad, broad uh, canvas. And who's publishing it? And that's OUP, so it's obviously due in last week, but hasn't gone right. in yet. Okay, well, that's uh, last week is nothing uh, for academic publishers. <laughs> um, that's great. Now, our, our speaker next week is from Queens. Sorry, I, I've completely, my, 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 my mind has gone blank. It's talking on Enoch Powell and Ireland. Uh, and I, I Paul Coth Cothorn, excuse me if I mispronounced his name, who's recently published a book on Enoch Powell. Sorry, so I, I finally recovered that. Even, I, I, oh, so even, that's the last week. Um, oh. Next week is Elaine Callanan instead. Oh, I beg your pardon, Paul, and I beg your pardon, Elaine. Elaine Callanan, who isn't from, from Northern Ireland, uh, who teaches in Carlow, who's talking about Anne, you can um, see me here. The title is, uh, a quotation, harked the beat of the drums, the battle has begun, the 1921 partition election for the Southern and Northern Parliaments. Okay, apologies to Elaine and, and to Paul for that, but we kind of know what's coming. And now can I propose a round of uh, applause, remote applause, electronic applause, digital applause, sorry, uh, to Eve for a presentation. Okay. Thank you. Thank Thanks you very, very much.
And thanks, Anne, and Quiva and all for all. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.